Welcome. You are listening to Park Avenue Podcasts, and this is Rabbi Elliot Cosgrove. While it's always better to hear it live, this is a place to be to catch the music, sermons, and select programs of Park Avenue Synagogue. If you like what you are hearing or want to learn more about the community, please check out our website at www.pasyn.org. Enjoy our latest installment. This year marks the 100th anniversary of the publication of F. Scott Fitzgerald's short story, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. The story is brief enough, but if you want to do it on the cheap and enjoy the added bonus of two hours alone with Brad Pitt, then you can watch the 2008 film adaptation. Born into antebellum Baltimore, Benjamin arrives into the world as a man somewhere in his 70s, fully formed, speaking, and bearded gray. At five, he's sent to kindergarten, but being an older man, he keeps falling asleep in school. At 18, he tries to enroll in college at Yale, but's rejected by the admissions officers who believe this middle-aged man is mocking him. Benjamin reaches his prime in his 20s and takes over his father's business, doubles it in size, gets married, fathers a son, and at the height of his powers enlists in the Spanish-American War to emerge as a decorated war hero. Hitting 50, Benjamin, now presenting as a man in his 20s, finally goes to college, enrolling at Harvard to play football, if for no other reason than to exact his revenge on Yale's football team for having rejected him years earlier. As Benjamin enters his teens, he realizes he can no longer compete with the men of college ball, nor, for that matter, understand the content of his college classes. Benjamin returns home to his son, who is now older than his father and embarrassed by him. Younger and younger, Benjamin grows the clock turning backwards into adolescence, into childhood, into infancy, and then, as the story closes, into a dark nothingness. Aside from its compact elegance, the appeal of Fitzgerald's story is that it serves as a meditation on the universally shared but often uncomfortable subject of aging. Fitzgerald credits the idea of the book to Mark Twain's comment that it is a pity that the best part of life comes at the beginning and the worst at the end. His book is a journey through an imagined alternative were we to start old and grow young, an option that Fitzgerald entertains but ultimately rejects. In other words, while we can all opine as to whether youth is or isn't wasted on the young, the direction of life is what it is, and the alternatives, fictional included, are not much better. To live forever would deprive life of its meaning. As Chaim Potok wrote in My Name is Asher Lev, something that is yours forever is never precious. Nor, for that matter, is it an option to stop time. In the words of Golda Meir, old age is like an airplane flying in a storm. Once you're in it, there's nothing you can do. Imperfect as it is, we're left with the option we have. We age, a state of being that comes with a built-in paradox. On the one hand, Growing old is a thing we desire most, far better than the alternative. 
And yet, it is the frailties that come with aging that are the very things we fear most in life. Ever since the Garden of Eden, when the first couple ate from the tree of knowledge but not from the tree of life, this paradox has been baked into the human condition, a condition for which we have an abundance of tools with which to cope. The most common path reinforced by the way secular culture valorizes youth, strength, and beauty is to cover up the signs of aging as they appear in our hair, on our bodies, and in our faces, a form of deniable as understandable as it is odd, given the fact that aging is the only thing we can all count on. Last year, the industry of anti-aging products in our country estimated at some $60 billion and growing at 5% each year. Other people, the don't ever grow up people, dig in their heels at the sight of gray hair, believing that the effects of aging can somehow be halted by way of desperate assertions of adolescence, a Harley Davidson, a sports car, or an earring. In my mind, the safest and cheapest of all the options. <laughs> the most common coping mechanism, no doubt, of course, is humor. Growing old is a backbone of more jokes than can be counted. We know the story of Sadie and Abe, who are visited on their 60th birthday by a fairy godmother who grants them each one wish. Sadie asks that her lifetime dream be fulfilled to travel the world and a wave of the wand, poof. Sadie's holding cruise tickets in her hand. The fairy godmother turns to Abe, who pauses and in a moment of daring says, I'd like to be married to a woman 30 years younger than me. The fairy godmother waves her wand, poof. Abe is now 90. <laughs> Humor. I'm glad the chairman didn't use that one. Humor is our response to that which is both painful and unavoidable. It was a famed novelist, Agatha Christie, who was asked what it was like to be married to a prominent archaeologist, to which she responded, it's wonderful. The older I get, the more interested he is in me. <laughs> the jokes may be Jewish or not, the jokes may be gendered or not, but the jokes, like all humor, are coping mechanisms to address the fact and the fear and the blessing of growing old. Because while many people, hopefully, look to each chapter of life as an opportunity for a new mission, what Arthur Brooks calls finding our second curve, longevity necessarily brings with it a cascade of losses. Most obviously, there are limitations on one's physical capacities, the frustrating realization that one simply cannot do what one once could. There are limitations on one's cognitive capacities, a series of reversions in energy, attention, and memory. COVID has done no favors to the elderly. First, foremost, and tragically, the loss of life. But COVID has also taken the kishkas out of the living, of all ages, but especially the aged. Over these past years, as the world has been turned upside down, Millions of seniors have been deprived of the hard-earned and long-anticipated victory lap that was their due. Travel, time with grandchildren, time with siblings, and otherwise. It's not just that the physical movement of seniors was circumscribed, but social circles as well. 
with every passing year an awareness that theirs is a journey shared by fewer and fewer. Ask any person between the ages of 75 and 105. Each one carries a list of friends. Gloria, Susie, Ruby, Didi, Rowan, no longer of this world. The death of a confidant, the death of a part of one's very being. I've always been struck by that scene towards the end of the book of Genesis, when the patriarch Jacob, finally reunited with his son Joseph, is brought by Joseph to meet with Pharaoh. The two patriarchs, Egyptian and Israelite, greet each other, and Pharaoh inquires of Jacob, how many are the years of your life? Jacob responds, the years of my sojourn are 130. Few and hard have been my years, and they do not measure up to the years of my father. Jacob has fathered a nation. He's been reunited with his children. He achieved a length of years that is, well, biblical in proportion. And yet when asked, his years are poor in quantity, quality, in absolute terms, and relative, certainly, to those of his forefathers. Whatever the facts are of Jacob's life, he suffers from a form of depression, an inability to see the good perseverating on the bad. Acutely aware of his impending mortality, he sees only the diminished road ahead, not the extraordinary road traveled. Jacob's mindset a window into the challenges of what it is to grow old. But the greatest price that comes with the privilege of longevity is not, I believe, a loss that can be explained by way of biology or physiology. We may not be happy about it, but intellectually we know that nobody, not even Moses, who died at 120 with eyes undimmed, ever reaches a promised land. Difficult as a fact of diminished physical and cognitive capacity may be, the real difficulty, I think, is the diminished role the elderly perceive themselves to have in this world. The emptiness felt by those who were once at the center of it all, at work, at home, in the community, the people around whom the universe once revolved and relied, whose every minute counted, and now see themselves as diminished in significance, in consequence, and in worth. Not just a loss of independence, but a fear that with senescence comes obsolescence that everybody who has moved on and left them behind, men and women who have built businesses, families, entire universes, who nurtured, counseled, and guided so many for so long, and now in their twilight years are shunted aside. And it's this fear, this fear of being cast aside that takes center stage on Yom Kippur. In every service of Yom Kippur, we name the fear before God. Shema Kolenu, hear our voice. Al Tashlichenu Laetzikna, do not cast us off in old age. Kichlot Kochenu Al Tazvenu, when our strength fails, do not forsake us. It is, I believe, the most searing confession of this sacred day. We miss the point if we believe that Yom Kippur is a day merely to confront the fact of our mortality who will live and who will die. Yom Kippur is a day that we give heed to the voice, the tortured cry, the tears and the fears of those who stand before the dying of the light. It's a feeling perhaps best expressed by the late children's poet, Shel Silverstein, who commented on Shema Kolenu by way of a dialogue. Imagine between a young boy and an old man, said the little boy, sometimes I drop my spoon. Said the old man, I do that too. The little boy whispered, sometimes I wet my pants. 
I do that too, said the old man. Said the little boy, I often cry. The old man nodded, so do I. But worst of all, said the boy, it seems to me that grown-ups don't pay any attention to me. And he felt the warmth of the wrinkled old hand. I know what you mean, said the old man. Do not cast us off in old age. Not the fear of death, not the fear of growing old, but the fear that in our old age we are ignored, abandoned, and pronounced obsolete. And it's here at this point in the sermon that I need to pause. Pause to name something aloud that many in this room are no doubt thinking. I am well aware that there are many, perhaps half the people in this room, who are older than me. People who might be thinking, Elliot, it's nice that you're acknowledging us. Thank you. And your gray hair, Elliot, tatale, it's sweet. <laughs> but what do you know? What do you really know about growing old? Elliot, you have the gift of living parents. May they live to 120. But I've cared for buried and mourned my own. What business do you have to speak of your elders, to your elders about the fear of aging, of being cast off, about the price that comes with the privilege of longevity? These are the right questions to ask, questions that are not only fair and stay with me, precisely the point. Because trained though I am as a pastor, I'm keenly aware of the limitations of my life experience. Attuned as I may be to the fragile nature of the human condition, neither I nor anyone for that matter can fully address the biological or theological questions surrounding human mortality, which is why I need to clarify, I need to specify that while I might be speaking about my parents' generation, my intended listener is my generation and the generations to come. Because if the diagnosis of the day involves naming the existential loneliness that accompanies growing old of the adverse consequences of societal attitudes towards the elderly, then it is the members of my generation who must hear that it is they, that it is we, who hold the corrective, the antidote, if you will, to that very state of affairs. Let me explain. Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, in a 1961 address at the White House Conference on Aging, gave voice to the existential fear of being useless to and rejected by family and society. The test of a people, he taught, is how it behaves towards the old. As a Jewish people, the obligation that one generation has to the prior generation of filial piety sits front and center. You don't need to look very far. It's number five of the Ten Commandments. Honor thy father and mother. A commandment whose very placement is significant in that it's grouped with the first five God-centered commandments as if to say that to honor a parent is equivalent to honoring God. What does it mean to honor one's parents? For starters, it involves not sitting in their place, not contradicting them in public, providing them with food and drink, with shelter and medical care. Some of the most colorful stories of all of rabbinic literature describe the heroic lengths, the sacrifices in time, finance, and ego made by Talmudic parent personalities in order to honor their parents, a compendium of filial one-upmanship that every Jewish mother would enjoy. In truth, 
We should all read the literature because it includes textured discussions about matters ranging from who pays for elder care, how to care for parents with dementia, at what point can one move a parent into group living, what to do if there are conflicts between siblings or spouses regarding care for parents or in-laws, and even the degree to which one should or should not honor an abusive parent. To honor one's parent, incidentally, is a commandment, like staka, that has nothing to do with whether you want to do it or not. We are not told to love our parents like we are told to love our neighbor. The commandment is kaved, in Hebrew meaning weighty or hard, according to the rabbis chamurah sheba chamurot, the absolute hardest of the hard. If it was easy, it wouldn't be commanded. In spirit and in deed, as individuals and as a community, we must be committed to honoring our parents. It's why, as a first step, I hope that this is a year that our community adds a social worker to our staff family for programming, for home visits, for help in navigating healthcare, to collaborate with clergy and with other agencies. We have much work to do as a community. But the real question, the question that Heschel spoke of, is not about physical sustenance, but spiritual. Not about giving materially, but about giving meaning. There's another word used in reference to filial obligation, and that is yira, meaning to revere, as these yamim noraim, these days of reverence or awe. Ish imove aviv tirau, a person shall revere his mother and father. And here what is clear is that of utmost concern to the rabbis was not who was going to foot the bill or how to keep a rebellious kid in line, but making sure that children in the prime of their lives attend to the dignity and spiritual well-being of the prior generation. What does it mean to revere one's parents? To revere one's parents is to affirm purpose in the face of the fear of being purposeless. Reverence is attitudinal, not material. It involves being patient. It requires extending honor. It demands providing dignity. Reverence begins with gratitude. Gratitude to the people who brought us into the world, who shaped us as human beings, who provided for us, who put our needs before their own, who sat at our bedsides even as we now sit at theirs. Reverence involves letting things go, forgiving frequently and freely, keeping our mouths shut, setting our egos aside, subsuming our own wants for a person to whom we can never repay. Reverence calls on us to concede that we do not know everything about everything, that there is much we can learn from someone who is rich in experience, experienced in failure, and advanced in years. The greatest gift that you can give to another person is to ask them for their opinion. Reverence reminds us of the importance of hugs, the importance of staying connected, of nurturing intergenerational dialogue, even when, perhaps especially when, that dialogue is one directional. Reverence calls on us to realize that there was a time when our parents were our age, and one day, please God, we will be theirs. People might get older, but the image of God, as Heschel taught, remains constant. To revere one's parents means that we treat each and every day that we inhabit this world with our parents as a gift, as an opportunity to imbue their lives 
and our own lives with significance. Reverence reminds us that holding on and letting go, painful as it may be, are acts of love, part of life, and can go hand in hand. Reverence for parents, mind you, has nothing to do with whether our parents are living or deceased. Each one of us is created in our parents' image. Our values, priorities, and commitments, a reflection, extension, and sometimes reaction to theirs. Today is Yom Kippur, as good a day as any to assess our reverence for those who came before. So I put it to you. Have you stepped up to live in the image of your parents? Are you taking your rightful place in your family, in your community, in this congregation? Or are you riding the coattails of those who preceded you? I can think of no greater way to give a parent purpose, presently or posthumously, than to instantiate their concerns and commitments beyond their length of years. I can think of no better way to demonstrate reverence for a parent than by living, aspiring towards the very high ideals of those who came before. What does reverence for a parent look like? The Bible provides us with the aspirational image of an aging olive tree surrounded by the saplings it has seeded. Banecha keshtulezi tame, your children shall be like olive saplings. In other words, a person should live to see the fruit of their labors and their children surrounding them, protecting them from the elements, providing them shade, honoring them and revering them, even as new saplings are being planted. With all due respect to Mark Twain, if we as a society, as a congregation, as sons and daughters do our jobs right, a deeply fulfilling part of life could be towards its end. Every day, a Jew is instructed to recite the Shema aloud, our central declaration of faith, and then beneath our breath we whisper, Baruch Shem Kvod Machuto Ba'ed, Blessed be the name of God who reigns for eternity. One day a year, today, Yom Kippur, as we just did, we say those hushed words out loud as well. Why do we do so? The Talmud explains that our patriarch Jacob, when he was renamed Israel and went down as noted to Egypt to be reunited with his sons, his greatest fear was that God's call to his grandfather Abraham, to his father Isaac, would come to an end with his passing. Israel saw that his grandchildren were living outside the promised land. He saw that they looked like Egyptians. He heard them speaking a foreign tongue. Who could blame him for fearing that his life work was all for naught? His love of land, his love of God, his love of the Jewish people all coming to an end. Al Tashlicheni, do not cast me off, we imagine him thinking as his family drew near. And it was there, at that moment, on his deathbed, as his soul was being placed in God's care, that his children, his grandchildren, and perhaps even his great-grandchildren stood at his side and affirmed, Shema Yisrael, hear, O Israel. Your God is our God, Hashem Elokeinu. God is one, Hashem Echad. As if to say, Dad, we get it. We got this. The things that you live for your whole life, not only are we grateful, but we promise they will extend well beyond your lifetime. In fact, 
they're already being lived by your children and your grandchildren. How do we know? Because you made it so. And with that, the great patriarch closed his eyes, crossed that narrow bridge, touched eternity, and with his final breath said aloud, Baruch Shem Kavod Malchuto Lamba Ed. Blessed be the name of God who reigns for eternity. Today is Yom Kippur. Today we name the shared fear of being cast aside. We gather in synagogue on this sacred day just as Jacob's children gathered at his bedside. The test is one and the same. Will we honor those who came before? Will we revere them? Will we affirm the commitments of their lives in our own? Are they assured that their values will extend beyond their length of years? The answer to all these questions are in our hands. May we step up to the calling of the sacred day, giving meaning and purpose to those who gave us life, giving meaning and purpose to our own lives, and giving meaning and purpose to the lives of the generations to come. Shana Tova. Thank you for listening to Park Avenue Podcasts, a place to be to catch the music, sermons, and select programs of Park Avenue Synagogue. If you like what you are hearing or want to learn more about the community, please check out our website at www.pasyn.org. See you in shul. Hallelujah. Oh